Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all, students and people from outside the school alike, uh, to this evening's public lecture by Professor Ian Goldin uh, from Oxford on the topic Divided Nations, Why Global Governance is Failing and What We Can Do About It. Um, now is the time, please, to at least turn your mobiles to silent, but you're very welcome to tweet through the event. The hashtag is LSE Golden. We're very pleased to have Ian back tonight at LSE because he is an alumnus of the school, or at least that's one reason for welcoming him back to the school tonight, having gained his MSc here uh, some years ago. Since then, of course, as I think you will all know, Ian's had a glittering career both within academia and perhaps more so even outside of it. After gaining his PhD at the University of Oxford, where he now teaches, Ian worked for the OECD in Paris as the uh, and then as the principal economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London. Ian was later chief executive of the Development Bank of Southern Africa, during which time he also served as an advisor to President Mandela. And more recently, he was a vice president and director of policy at the World Bank, and that's just some of his many accomplishments. Uh, Professor Golden is currently the director of the Oxford Martin School and professor of globalization and development at Oxford University. Uh, he's written many, many books, I think over 15, but among the more recent of them, uh, I would single out particularly uh, two books, Exceptional People, How Migration Shaped Our World and Will Define Our Future, and Globalization for Development, uh, Meeting New Challenges. Tonight, though, happily, Ian has written another book, and I think we'll be developing arguments uh, from that tonight because, of course, the title of the talk is also the title of the new book just published by OUP. Again, Divided Nations, Why Global Governance is Failing, Oxford, Comma, and What We Can Do About It. Um, Ian, it's a great pleasure to have you back at LSE. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much, Stuart, and um, thanks to you all for coming. I wrote this book uh, because I am worried that unless we ensure that nations are less divided, uh, we will not meet the challenges of the 21st century. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be uh, working with about 350 people in the Oxford Martin School who are working on many of the greatest challenges of our time. Uh, financial and economic inequality, climate change, environment, pandemics, cybersecurity, antibiotic resistance, and many others. And if there's one thing that keeps us awake at night, it's not that we don't understand the issues or even have senses of the answers, but that no one is listening. Or to the extent that people are listening, uh, they are unable to even come to simple conclusions and to act on them. And what we've seen in recent years is a total gridlock in international affairs, a failure of governments to be able to lift themselves to a higher level, and a failure of, I believe, citizens, including all of us, to demand this of our governments. And so what we have uh, is divided nations. I used to be very critical of the international global governance system, and I still am. I believe it is totally unfit for 21st century purpose. 
But instead of blaming the boards and administrations and personnel of these institutions, I increasingly blame the governments that run them, the divided nations. Because these institutions can only be as strong as their governing bodies and their masters allow. And so the problem, of course, is with the institutions. But the bigger problems are with our own governments, with our own incapability of electing governments that will take responsibility for the planet. And that's why I believe this is an urgent activity for all of us to think about this. Globalization and the future of connectivity, I believe, is at risk. What we've achieved over the last 20-odd years is the most remarkable progress that humanity has ever known in such a short space of time. An extraordinary period. I'm from South Africa. I was engaged in the struggle for democracy in South Africa. And in a remarkably quick period of time after Maggie Thatcher had said this would not happen, those that believed it would were living in cloud cuckoo land, uh, it happened. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears were spelt in achieving that outcome. But what I came to realize much later is that this was no way a unique experience. It was happening around the world. Eighty countries became democratic in the 1990s, and this was part of a process of global connectivity. It was the walls coming down. It was the integration of the world. And so there's really only one place in the world now, which is North Korea, which is disconnected. This has many positive aspects to it, not least remarkable improvements in life expectancy and in incomes around the world, reductions in poverty. Over this period, there's been 2 billion more people added to the planet, most people urbanized. And despite this massive, unprecedented increase in populations, the absolute number of desperately poor people in the world has gone down by about 300 million. This has never happened historically, where the numbers of citizens in the world has increased, and yet absolute poverty has increased, and then uh, has decreased. And there are many, many other measures of human development. It's, in, on the whole, been a good story. It's been a story which is unfinished. It's been a story which needs to be accelerated to be more inclusive, to ensure that the two and a half billion people in the world who have not benefited, benefited. But this cannot happen if we all fall apart. If nations become less united, if they seek to further their own interests at the expense of others, and if individuals do this, we're at great risk that this extraordinary project of integration will fall apart, that societies will become more xenophobic, nationalist, protectionist, that we will seek in our own little communities and on our own lives to advance and not care about others. The cult of individuality, which is part of this, is of course a wonderful thing. People can do what they want, where they want, when they want now, and feel liberated personally. They are free in a way that they weren't in many previous generations. But it carries with it an enormous responsibility, which is to be free for others, not, to, not free for oneself. And this tension 
between individual freedom and individual pursuit and that of society is growing more intense. So what the book seeks to do is think about what economists should have thought about and have thought about in times past, which is the global commons questions. The sum of individual rational actions does not lead to collectively good outcomes always. I spent the last two days at Aldebra on the North Sea, not far from here on the Suffolk coast, a wonderful place that used to be one of the cod fishing centers of the UK. The individual cod fishermen were doing the right thing. They were fishing to feed their families. The community was doing the right thing, investing in bigger fishing boats. The UK was supporting them with subsidies. Now they're no fish. What was rational for the individual fishermen and for the community and perhaps even for this government was irrational when others did the same thing. And this commons problem is a universal problem. It is the same problem with climate change. We all need to get around. We all need to heat our homes. We all need to eat more processed food, which has better nutrition in it, and so on. And when we all do it, the atmosphere is overfilled. The same thing happens on antibiotic resistance. We all are glad to be able to take our antibiotics. They keep us healthy. They've led to massive leaps in the progress on health. But when everyone does this, antibiotic resistance develops and none of our antibiotics are effective anymore. And we see this already in many cases. And of course it happens in finance. The pursuit of the market and of profit is a good thing. It leads to people allocating resources and the market responding to needs in ways that central planning has been proved itself incapable of doing. But when only the market determines outcomes, we get total irrationality at the aggregate level. Some of you may have picked up that a tuna was auctioned about six weeks ago in Tokyo for $1.8 million dollars. Last year, a similar sort of size tuna was auctioned in Tokyo for $700 million. And I have no doubt that in the coming year, we'll see a tuna selling for more than $2 million. This is the market's response to the scarcity of natural resources. Put the price up, demand and supply, more fishermen with more high-tech equipment will chase the remaining tuna, and then there will be none. The market alone cannot provide a response to scarcity of natural resources uh, and to global commons failures. But governments on their own are also incapable of this. And there are many, many examples of this, even when they share a rather small resource. I was at the World Bank in two incarnations, the first uh, in the early 90s and the second more recently. And in the first period, one of my responsibilities was water resources, and I was involved in a project to save the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea, a big inland ocean, a source of livelihood of fishing and of irrigation water for seven Central Asian countries, each doing the right thing, drawing water to feed the people, allowing their citizens to advance in terms of their nutrition 
Collectively, it's now an arid sand lake. No fish, no fishing, and no irrigation. That's what happens when nations do the right thing for themselves. And so what we need to think about in this period of hyperconnectivity and globalization is how what we do as individuals and what we do as nations adds up. How, if others do the same thing, outcomes will be determined. And so what the book tries to do is think through this dilemma. Now, I'm an economist. I know most about finance. I'm trying to learn about other things, some of which I still know desperately little about, like cyber and pandemics and things. But I have great colleagues in Oxford that have been very patient with me. But what I took away from finance was the embarrassment of not understanding what was happening in the system and being part of the problem, not the solution in Washington. The interesting thing about finance and the global financial system is that it's by far the most sophisticated of the global management systems. And the same thing, of course, applies at the national level. You'll know in the UK, not least today, when the budget determined our futures, that the Treasury, the Bank of England, is the elite of British government. It has the best people, the best graduates of our universities go into these places. It pays better than the others, has a better career stream, better fringe benefits, better status, better data, and it's much more joined up at the global level. Because the equivalence of these institutions like the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and the Treasury in the U.S. and the counterparts. This is a club. This is an elite club of financial officials and, of course, the institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, and others are the elite global institutions. The best endowed, best people, best data, and most joined up. The central bankers all play golf together at least twice a year, or at least once a year at Jackson Hole, those that play golf and those that don't swan around. These people know each other. They talk the same language. It's a global community, a club. And so when finance is blindsided about complexity and integration, one has to really worry, because this is a system uh, which prides itself on analytic depth. Just go to the Bank of England website and look at the number of working papers that are generated or look at the working papers coming out of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. Think about tens of thousands of economists employed on this. In fact, there's a very good website that tells you how many people are employed in all these institutions. And these are PhDs. So it's a lack of understanding, a lack of comprehension. It's not a lack of data or a lack of people. Those abound. There's more data. It's a question of understanding it. So what I'm trying to understand and what I've been working on is this failure of understanding complexity and the evolution of the system and understanding the underbelly of what's been going on since 1990. And by 1990, when I say 1990, I'm thinking about this period when walls have come down. The Berlin Wall came down but the walls across Europe, of course, with the integration of Europe, the trade walls, trade tariffs now are about a third of their level that they were in 1919, capital account controls across all these regions, and, of course, the opening up of many societies across Africa 
Asia and Latin America that were military dictators before that have become integrated in the world, and of course the opening up of China as part of this process. So extraordinary change, and I give some of the data uh, on this change in this period, with progress as I've indicated. But the two underbellies of this process have been that it's been associated with growing inequality within countries and between countries and growing potential for systemic risk. And both are very important and both reinforce each other. Democracy is the best system we know about, even if it's far from ideal. And it works when individuals have the power to express themselves and change the nature of government in society's favor. Growing inequality means that increasingly, and this is particularly the case in the U.S., that democracies are being captured by power elites who are able to exercise control. And in the U.S., what you see is that growing inequality has reinforced growing inequality as lobbyists, whether they're from the coal industry or from the banking industry or other industries, push governments to reduce taxation uh, and reduce regulatory intervention. And we saw this in the UK as well, a race to the bottom on regulation, governments getting out of controlling things that are vital to all of our future and trusting the market to add up and give us a good outcome. And so what we saw with the financial crisis was an almost anarchic system in which actually no one knew what was going on. Hank Paulson was the Treasury Secretary at the time of the financial crisis. Uh, And as many of you know, he had been the chief executive of Goldman Sachs before becoming the Treasury Secretary. Many of us believed that there was a conflict of interest in him moving from Goldman Sachs to the Treasury, and indeed the revolving door between Wall Street and the Treasury has been the subject of a number of books. But we thought there must be one silver lining, which would be that he would understand banking and finance. So you read his testimony to the Congressional Committee uh, into the financial crisis. And you have this gentleman who had been the chief executive of Goldman Sachs, who had the best data and people at his disposal in the globe, saying, we just did not understand what was happening. And this total failure, this blindsidedness, uh, is a result of governments basically standing back and not understanding the evolution of the system and how it was being gamed across the system. Regulatory arbitrage, which is the development using new technologies of means to not be illegal, to be totally legal, but to play the system. What we've come to discover is not only that globalization requires rules and regulations, but more importantly, that it requires these beyond the level of the nation state. And what we have at the moment is this widening divide between a global system, which in all of our lives is totally integrated, but in the lives of governance is totally segmented and fragmented. And actually the global institutions are weaker now than they were in 1990. So this is the tension 
between a system, be it finance or cyber or the environment or any other system that you care to think about, a system where borders do not matter or matter much less than they used to. That's what is going to shape our futures. All of these systems that transcend national boundaries. And yet the responsibility for these lies still at the nation level. And nations who increasingly, strangely enough, despite this globalization of everything, are becoming more parochial. So the UK is thinking of leaving Europe. Scotland is thinking about leaving the UK. And so this is repeated around the world. People are seeing the system and fearing it. They believe that the things that shape their future will come from outside in a very bad way. So the risk of integration is the risk of systemic shock. It's the risk of complexity. It's the risk of being out of control of your destinies. And that is a real risk. So the more you integrate, the more things that happen elsewhere cascade across your borders in ways that you cannot understand. But the response, which is to withdraw and believe that you can build the walls again, is totally misguided. Because it is the case that all of our destinies, the most important things that happen in our future and that shape the future of this society and all societies will come from across our borders. It will be the forces that shape the destiny of the UK. So trying to create walls, trying to stop the migrants coming in in increasingly dramatic ways, trying to withdraw into smaller territorial politics, I believe is counterproductive. Because I believe that the only way we'll be able to ensure a common destiny is not only by making everything local, and obviously in the end all politics is local, and we need to feel in control of our communities, but more importantly to ensure that we can translate this into global actions. And it's the global actions that in the end are going to be determinant. So in this book, I take five examples as illustrative of the sorts of things I'm talking about. And it's not because I believe they're the most important or I believe that they're necessarily the newest um, or that the others have been solved. Because I do not talk about certain things. I do not talk about poverty and development in this book, although I have in many of my other books. I do not talk about nuclear threats and conflict, and that's a big issue. So I pick finance, pandemics, migration, climate change, and cybersecurity, and the cyber world, as examples of how changes that have happened over the last 20 years mean that the existing structures of governance are unfit for purpose, and how we need to move from national management to global management in critical areas. These areas have a number of things in common. In finance, to some extent in pandemics, certainly in climate change, and certainly in cyber, these problems arise in many ways from the success of globalization. 
The reason why climate change has become such a pressing issue is because of the extraordinary rapid rise in incomes uh, over the world over the last post-war period in general, but particularly the last 25 years. And the reason why it's become even more urgent that something is done, and that this is a looming disaster, is because of the projected increase in incomes that are likely to continue, not least in Asia, uh, Latin America, and Africa, and people going up the income curve. When people reach about $7,000 per capita average incomes, they maximize the intensity of their interrelationship with the planet in the sense of they're maximizing their carbon dioxide emissions, their other greenhouse gas emissions, their transfer of what they eat into demand for water or land, uh, food, and so on. When you reach much higher levels of income, you sort of get into the position that I'm in. You, know, you actually eat less, you cycle, you do other things. And it, but this is where the peak and this is where most of the world is going through. This transition path over the next 15 years or so, which is a result of success. It's the result of income growth. But unless it is managed effectively, as I heard David argue convincingly, was it yesterday, um, this looming disaster uh, threatens to cause mayhem in many dimensions. Now, pandemics, interestingly enough, are another result of our success of integration. The reason that pandemics have become such a pressing issue that require supranational attention is because of our connectivity, because of globalization. Our transport systems, our urban uh, areas have become the nodes of supercontagion. And that is crucially important. So we've done a, an analysis in our emerging infections group in the Oxford Martin School of the spread of swine flu, which has recently been published. And it's the exact correlation, as one would expect, of aircraft travel, with key no nodes like Heathrow becoming very important uh, in this. And the pandemics people tell me that anything that starts anywhere in the world will be everywhere now within about two days. So the idea that you can somehow insulate yourself in this era is a myth. And, of course, it is the underbelly of globalization, this cascading systemic structure. What's also interesting about pandemics, as in climate change, is that technological advances have also aggravated the problem. The DNA synthesizing will be a wonderful progressive thing uh, for all of us. I hope it will improve all of our health care. Our medical systems will be much better targeted. The tablets we have and others will be much better targeted. So it's a good thing. At the same time, the capacity to synthesize measles, Ebola, smallpox, etc., has terrifying potential consequences. And also points to another issue which I focus on in the book, which is the rise of individuals. The power of very small groups of individuals in the case of pandemics to radically destabilize very large communities or perhaps even the world. So a sort of a nightmare scenario is Waco, Texas with biopathogens. These are Armageddonists, people who 
believe that they can bring salvation and have a new means to do it. Now, how do you control this? What is the answer? Do we ban DNA synthesizing? Or do we seek to better understand and to manage its, particularly through the sort of dangerous parts that it could, the spread of, for example, DNA synthesizers around the world? Cybersecurity and cyber is another good example of where you get this extraordinary potential, and all of us know what the impact of the Internet has been in terms of its progressive impact, its potential to give us knowledge, its potential to connect people around the world who've been disconnected and give them the same information set that we have. But we know, too, now that very small groups of individuals can disrupt the system, and there's a growing number of people, including my colleague Jonathan Zittrain, who are talking about the end of the Internet. Now, what's interesting about the Internet is that it's not a government-managed system. It's a small NGO that really controls it. Whether this is sustainable, how it's sustainable, uh, is a very big issue. The Internet has no global management capacity at all. And so cyber criminals that steal your identity, uh, corrupt your computer, or do whatever they want to do, are basically free. Uh, Because while police have national jurisdictions and criminal justice systems have national jurisdictions, the Internet uh, has none. And there are lots of cases of this, of the inability to prosecute people even when you know who they are. Much has been said recently about state actors and this so-called nerve center in Shanghai that's alleged to control uh, state actors who are trying to destabilize. But actually no one is really sure about these things. What we do know about is individuals and small groups that want to destabilize. And trying to get a global governance system in place for the Internet is very important. But as in climate change, the recent negotiations ended in complete gridlock. Migration is a topic that I've written extensively about. Uh, My previous book, but one, was all about this. But it's one of the orphan issues, like climate, like cyber, These issues have advanced way ahead of global capacity. So there's no international organization which has a legitimacy, executive power uh, in the area of migration, just like there isn't in cyber and just like there isn't in climate. So migration is a sort of anarchic system. It's a bullying system where big countries do what they want, uh, where there are no global rules, where there are horrific abuses, um, and, of course, where there's also very bad data. So one of the big problems, as we're seeing with the UK with this whole student story, is that the data on migration are not agreed collectively. No one actually knows what a migrant is on a common definition globally, partly because there's no agreed institutional structure. So there are many things that could be improved in migration, including, for example, portability of pensions, of social security, of basic rights, and many other areas that I talk about uh, in exceptional people. Uh, But the basic fact is, first, it needs people to get to agree that they need to talk about this and negotiate around it. The global institutions that we have were a response in the post-Second World War period to a series of crises and threats, not unlike those that we see now. People had suffered terribly through the World Wars, through the Great Depression, 
And there was a feeling in societies that they needed to come together. They needed to be cooperative outcomes that individual nations could no longer manage the affairs of the world. And it took the genocide and these terrible wars and the terrible depression to give people a sense that they could relinquish some mandate from the nation state to global institutions. And for a while those institutions did well in the sense that a lot of the success of Europe, of Japan, of Scandinavia and other places is attributable to what these institutions did. The World Bank, remember, is name is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Its first task was the reconstruction of Europe after the Second World War. But over time, we've become very complacent. We believe that we are so powerful that we can determine our own affairs, that we can run these organizations as if they are our own, and through them impose our will on the global community. But these nations and other players that are growing up now have the ability to ignore us. Indeed, what the financial crisis has shown very graphically is that the tables have literally uh, been turned around. And so we had this incredible scene of Europe going with its begging bowl to China after the crisis. The structural adjustment policies that are being imposed now in Europe are very similar to those that were imposed by the IMF and the World Bank on many emerging countries uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. The tragedy is that the lessons have not been learned. Because these institutions have actually moved on. They've realized that you can't push austerity first and get out of these crises. And there have been many other lessons about the sequencing of reform, what you do, how you do it, this has all been lost. So we have some sort of vacuum at the top. The old powers are unfit for purpose. They aren't able to manage the institutions. They can't dominate them anymore. And actually, they're not that interested in them anymore. They're focused on crises at home. The European Union has very little bandwidth for managing global affairs, whether it's on climate or poverty or on anything else. The U.S., of course, has had its nodes bloodied on a number of occasions and also has very little bandwidth. Remarkable how little is said about foreign affairs or international institutions. The, best, the safest way to get elected in the U.S. is not to mention an international institution in your election speeches. And certainly don't mention climate change. And Japan, of course, is bogged in crisis too. So the old powers, the G7, are not leading and in many ways, they're withdrawing and starving these institutions of capability. The new powers are not yet ready. China, Russia, India, Brazil, South Africa, and others are not yet in a position to do it. This is both because they don't have the voting shares, although I think that's not the key problem. It's more because they don't actually want to. They are not ready. I've had long arguments with my friends in India and South Africa and China and elsewhere. I'm going back to China tomorrow to continue this about why they don't play a bigger role in global affairs, particularly on absolutely crucial areas like climate change, like finance. And the answer is 
different for the different countries, but for China, which is the most important, it's because they, want to, they believe that they, for all sorts of reasons to do with the level of poverty at home, still 200 million desperately poor people managing transition others, that this is not the time to do it. I believe they're wrong for all sorts of reasons. So we're in this terrible power vacuum of transition where the international institutions are drifting, where small countries are playing little local politics. No institutions get killed off. None get created. No radical reform happens. And no international negotiations are concluded. And the system drifts in gridlock. As the pressure mounts for more and more global connectivity. Now, what we've seen in finance, I believe, is the first really dramatic example of what happens when you don't manage a system. It really goes into a downward spiral, uh, and it's extremely difficult to come out of. And the costs of managing it, the costs of engaging proactively, are far smaller than any of the possible consequences of trying to pull it back together after the crash. And I believe that we are sleepwalking into a series of other crises on other issues, like on climate change, like on pandemics, like on the collapse of the Internet, and a number of others, antibiotic resistance, and many others, which need not be the case. And because we're sleepwalking, we're also not dealing with the fundamental problems in finance. And for that reason, it's very likely we're going to have a series of financial crises. I've said a lot of negative things. Let me try and be cheerful. The good news is that citizens are more connected. That the power of this globalization has been to reduce the influence of ideologies that divided us in the past, to give us information which is unprecedented in its scale and scope to allow us to better understand and to give us the means to do it in new and fascinating ways. Some of you might have followed the Popper-Sipper debate in the U.S. about the control of the web, uh, intellectual property content on it, and its accreditation and copywriting. A group of people, including Wikipedia creators and others, decided to oppose this after it had gone through the U.S. legislative process and democratic process and was already up at the Senate. And within two days, 80 million people had gone online and forced the Senate to drop this thing in six hours. There is a capacity in mass mobilization created out of this which exists. Now, it raises, I think, very deep and somewhat troubling issues about the nature of democracy. Is the sort of herding that can happen a legitimate form of contesting a democratic process? And where does it end? We see it with private corporations a lot, the herding that goes around. We saw it on BP. We've seen it on others the reputational amplification of damage that can happen on the Internet, and the potential for moods to swing. But what you see in this 
is the power to mobilize, the power to inform and the power to bring people together across cultural barriers and other barriers. We also know that some things work and some things are able to transcend time and space. So I fly a lot. I'll be flying again tomorrow, as I mentioned. And I might worry about some things on the plane, but I don't worry about planes crashing into each other. And that's because international air traffic control works very well. Across increasing number of borders, languages, time zones, and technologies, with the pace of technological change being even greater than in many other areas, the system is robust. The International Postal Union actually also works very well, completely unlike what it was 20 years ago or 100 years ago, but the same operating principles. And what is it that allows these things to work when other things are so absolutely incapable of working? Why can we get the international air traffic system to work and yet allow mass atrocities in Syria to take place? What's the difference between these things? And why is the system so incapable on some and capable on others? And I think the answer is because in air traffic control, like in postal union, no one has an interest in playing a different game. No one has an interest in rules being changed. Whereas in a situation like Syria's or in the financial crisis or in cyber or in climate change, there's very different interests that are at play. There's power at play. And behind power, there's the market, vested interests, strategic interests, and others. So there's a limit to how far you can take these success stories and escalate them. One of the most troubling success stories, if you want to... Let me start again. One of the most troubling failures um, that have been observed in recent years is, of course what happened in Iraq. But what's interesting about this is that it totally usurped and went on despite the international system, the travesty of the international system. And the question of whether coalitions of the willing can be used to move and advance issues is, I think, a very important one. Unfortunately, the term has been so bastardized that uh, one has to think of a better way of expressing this. But the basic point is, if the European Union, for example, believes that climate change is a real threat to humanity, why doesn't it just do something about it? And if it gets together with Bangladesh and Maldives and a few other representative countries uh, of, that will be very adversely affected by these things. Why doesn't it increase its legitimacy by coming to a common set of rules around these and creating a widening circle of governance of this issue that others, I believe, will feel compelled to join over time? So we use the failure of international agreement as an excuse for our own inaction. We use it as well as a get-out clause the problem is, if you use the failure of global governance as a source of explanation for why we don't do things, uh, you will never do anything, and the problems will get worse. So I believe like-minded societies 
individuals need to organize. They need to organize cooperatively. They need to collaborate on finding solutions across borders. And they need to act on them and not wait for the global system to play catch-up. The institutional reforms at the global system, unfortunately, will require that the governments that run them are prepared to engage in them. Uh, These institutions have many, many strengths, but reform is not one of them. Without the mandate driven very hard, even with very strong mandate, they don't reform. I've been on two Bretton Woods Reform Commissions and on the United Nations Reform Commission. It was a wonderful, wonderful process, wonderfully smart people, well-meaning, like many of the staff that work in these institutions, great ideas, all sorts of organigrams drawn of overlapping mandates and potentials for the future, four prime ministers involved, including at the time Gordon Brown, good intentions. And Kofi Annan received the report with good intentions to reform the UN. But nothing really significant has happened. Because actually, the institutions that control, the governments that control these institutions don't really want powerful actors outside their own control. They want these institutions, in some sense, to be weak, to be beholden to them. They don't want to give up power. And so you see in the microcosm of British politics the discussions of how much authority to give to Brussels or how much authority to give to the UN, something which all countries, unfortunately, mirror to differing degrees. An unwillingness to recognize that if we want to live in a globalized world, if we want to ensure that the benefits of globalization and integration are shared by everyone, we have to make sure that the divisions between countries are overcome and that we can really become a United Nations. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Um, we are going, well, Ian is going to be doing a book signing after the event. I was lucky enough to read the book over the weekend. But before we do that, of course, we're going to move to questions and answers. We're going to see how many hands shoot up to decide uh, whether we want to do them. Uh, well, perhaps we'll start individually and then go to groups. Um, we'll start with the gentleman at the back. If you could please say who you are and then ask your question. Hi, my name is uh, Danny D. Um, Thank you, Professor um, Golden. Uh, it's a really very exciting presentation you gave us. But how can we reconcile these old um, um, disease of the sovereign nation states and with the global governance? Um, this is still at play, so I don't know what's your proposition or solution for that. Thank you. There's sort of two, two versions of how this thing is going to be reconciled. The one is actually people will only give up sovereignty to some extent when um, all other options have been exhausted and we're desperate. And that's the sort of Second World War version of why 
the, the authority was given up to the global institutions at that time. Um, my, my problem with that argument is that I believe the financial crisis has been the most devastating crisis ever uh, in certainly living memory, but even worse than the Great Depression in many respects in terms of its impact on the global economy, on unemployment, uh, on many other dimensions of society. And so one has to, and, and yet there's been virtually no global governance reform in finance as a result of that. There was something very exciting that happened. The G20 was created. We thought that uh, happened very fast, uh, much faster than I imagined it would, but that's just dissipated into another photo op. It has no executive power or authority uh, in the world. And similarly, the um, Financial Stability Board uh, transformed itself, um, but also no executive authority. Um, so if the financial crisis has not resulted uh, in really radical shifts in global governance in finance, is that because the crisis wasn't big enough? And I think that would be a very difficult argument to make, uh, at least one I wouldn't want to make. Um, or is it because somehow we weren't ready to... The transmission between crisis and governance reform uh, wasn't there. And if so, why not? And how do we allow a small crisis to turn into a big governance reform is basically the question uh, which I think we need to get our heads around. Um, and that's part of what the book's about, is saying get ready because we're going to have to do a lot of reform and these are some ideas for that. Um, the other uh, way of thinking about governance reform is that um, actually we, we have evolved as a, as a species. We're a little bit wiser than we were. We're a, bit, a little bit more connected. We've got a bit more data. And we do understand that, for example, the fisheries have collapsed uh, and that the atmosphere is filling up and that um, you know, there's, there's going to be another financial crisis. We understand these things. And so we will demand them of our governments. You know, obviously, I hope, because of the tragedy of the devastation of crises, and we're seeing one in Syria uh, now, and we see them all the time, uh, that we can mobilize, that we can actually uh, build political movements uh, that force our governments to uh, join up more. And if, the European Union is a wonderful experiment in this respect. It's the best post-Second World War experiment in the ceding of sovereignty. It's just quite remarkable how much sovereignty the members of the European Union have given up, given up including over their borders, most of them, not the UK, but to some extent the UK, uh, over capital account, over many, many dimensions, over defense, over foreign policy in some crucial respects, over aid in some crucial respects. So, the, you know, the, this, uh, what's happening in the European Union uh, and the crisis in the European Union and its future, to me, is very, very important in understanding whether super-sovereignty can work. Now, one, one doesn't have to go all the way to the European Union to solve the problems of global governance. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we all become one country, even if that is some sort of dream I might have after too many glasses of wine. Um, but the process of ceding sovereignty is not unknown to us uh, in Europe over this period of time. Uh, in fact, dramatically known to us. So we have a capability of doing it. Um, 
but we don't. In fact, what I fear and why I wrote the book is that we're actually heading rapidly in the opposite direction. We're weakening global governance at exactly the time when it needs to be strengthened uh, for the reasons that I outlined. So um, my sense is the jury is out, and part of what I'm trying to do is agitate for people to take this on proactively. Yeah. Um, come into the middle, then we'll come over to that side. There's a gentleman here. Thank you. I'm David Wood from London Futurists. Your analysis seems very clear and compelling to me. I wonder what reaction there is from the political leaders that you talk to. Do they sort of say, yes, we see it's true, but we can't do anything about it? Or is there any scope for some of them to actually show some real leadership and make a mark? Possibly even the ex-leaders like Gordon Brown that yep. you mix with. Maybe they've got more opportunity to, yep. to show leadership here. Um. Well, the book only came out on Thursday, so I've had no reaction at all. But, <laughs> but uh, hopefully it'll come. Uh, the, I mean, a number of things. One is we've started something in Oxford um, which is very interesting called the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations, which is a group of 15 ex-leaders, basically, plus a, a couple of um, really smart people. <laughs> some leaders are very smart people, sorry. And some other very smart people. <laughs> um, like Amartya Sen and others, uh, Martin Rees, the former head of the Royal Society. But it includes, uh, it's chaired by Pascal Lamy, who I actually think is the best of the global institutional leaders still in power. Uh, includes Bob Zelik, from, who was the head of the World Bank, and Trichet, who was the head of the European Central Bank, Michel Bachelet, and many others of that sort of stature. And the basic question we've said to them is, why couldn't you get anything done when you were in power? And what would you do, now that you're out of power and free to talk, uh, what you want to say, basically. So that's the basic question. And why do you, why, what do you do about bringing the long term into the short term? Because a lot of these issues are about that. How do you make uh, citizens, governments, things? It also includes, by the way, two very interesting media figure, uh, figures, uh, Ariana Huffington and uh, Lionel Barber, uh, the, sorry, um, the, the head of the, the editor of the FT. Um, and, um, so, so we're trying to understand this, and, and, and it's, 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 I think it's, it's quite a dangerous experiment for us because I'm very worried we bring out a report that everyone says this is boring. Uh, you've said nothing, in which case we won't publish it. But um, the idea is basically to say to people, now that you're out of power, what's your advice to people in power? And when you speak to people in power, and I, I do, do speak to people in Downing Street and in opposition here and elsewhere, um, the, they basically give you excuses about losing power. And the problem with big decisions is that you do lose power often. I mean, this, this is not, this is not um, I think, just, just sort of um, a lack of um, will on the part of leaders. It's, it's also a real fear that citizens aren't ready for it and that they're not prepared uh, to cede power. And in the UK, you see this almost viscerally at the moment uh, around a whole series of issues. Uh, to be internationalist is to be unfashionable, uh, and that's true in the US uh, as well. Completely bizarrely, especially by people who talk about themselves as pushing the market, uh, which is totally international. You know, you wouldn't dream of stop, stopping a multinational corporation, but you're very happy to stop a migrant um, uh, move. And the... I, I think this is partly misplaced. I think leaders 
are showing lack of leadership. I think they need to make the arguments for engagement at the global level. I also think they need to make the arguments for incremental action at the global level, so not use global inaction as an excuse and go much further, much faster uh, on these things. Um, and we'll see what happens in a number of respects on that. But it's also particularly difficult, I think, in a time of crisis. People are under threat. And um, to be talking about the problems somewhere else or the problems which seem to be able to be postponed and kicked into the medium term when you've got pressing short-term problems uh, is seen by many politicians as the wrong thing to do. I think they're wrong because actually the reason we have short-term problems is because we can't fix the long-term big structural issues and the systemic issues. The financial crisis, which is our short-term overwhelming problem, entirely results from our failure to manage global finance. Uh, there's no way we'd be in a financial crisis if that ball, if we had kept our eyes on that ball. And so it is in multiple other dimensions. So I think it's the short-sightedness is a trap, is an excuse, but I think you know, good politicians should be able to stand up and say this. And I think electorates are intelligent enough to understand it. We're getting a lot of hands up now, so if Ian's agreeable, I think we'll go yeah, for absolutely. three groups of three. There's a young man who's got the microphone. We'll come down this side, and then we'll work back to the middle and over this side as well. Um, Ian McFarlane, I thought it was a very thought-provoking lecture, uh, and I wondered if you could expand upon your logic, which implied that a coalition of the willing to tackle, for example, uh, climate change was benign, whereas a coalition of the willing to, for example, topple a dictator was malign, because it seems to me that on a theoretical level um, they are alike. Yeah, I think, I think you're you right. Take, you uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, sorry, sorry, you sorry, might, you might want to use your pen. And yeah, yeah, um, I think there's a gentleman over there who's got the microphone. Yeah. Um, Nigel Hall, um, what chance do you think that we're heading for rule by emergency measures, even martial law, um, as a result of some real downward spiral in a particular country in Europe, and that we need a sort of catastrophic jolt before we actually get the mobilisation and the popular willingness to support it. Take one more, Ian. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Paul Knudsen, um, two related questions. Uh, it's really a failure, glo global government's failure of unregulated capitalism, the democracies and also capitalism. And I personally don't see how we're going to have much progress unless we have an acceptance that we need to have regulated capitalism. The other is that many of the... That many, sorry? People on this side can't hear you. If you can repeat your question. The, the gist of the first part of the question can we have reform okay. without a reform of uh, capitalism, a more regulated form of capitalism? Without regulated capitalism, we're not going to get the global governments. Governance. The other is that the, uh, the institutions which do exist where you their governance is reducing. Most of them are set up because of the U.S. having so much power the last 50 years. Yeah. Who is going to have the power and the willingness? Is it going to be China? Um, is there a scenario we can believe in? Yeah. Um, okay. These <laughs> are really excellent questions. Um, I think, you know, you could see that I struggled with the concept of coalitions of the willing. Um, for the reasons that you've highlighted. Uh, I think there is a, a problem there, that I, we, I like some coalitions and not others. Um, and, um, you know, the only answer I'd really have to that is that, um, 
in a sense, I believe in the concept of a just war. In other words, a war on climate seems to be a just war to me. Uh, the war in Iraq wasn't. Uh, now, that, that's my view. Um, the, what I think it's also about is I can see no, no real impingement of anyone's medium-term interests uh, through, say, action to reduce the threat of pandemics uh, or cyber attacks or climate um, resulting from an action. And, and I did stress, and I, I believe this is absolutely vital to the success of any sort of concept, that you want the victims in the negotiation too. Okay? So, um, you know, I would not uh, feel comfortable with anything the European Union agreed on climate change if a representative sample of uh, victims, let's say, a you know, to me, Bangladesh, Maldives would be a representative sample of, of victims, weren't part of the agreement on that. But I would go so far as to say anything the European Union agreed with Bangladesh and some selective sample of countries, um, I would be prepared to sign up to. Because I, I think it would be a rational outcome because of their, their different interests. So it's, it, I think, I think what, what differentiates it perhaps is the, is the voice of the, of the other side uh, in the process. But it's, you know, it, it's, it's a troubling question, and I think in the end it's about judgments around these things. Um, emergency measures and martial uh, law. I think we are a very way long, long way away from that. I think we will stumble with our very imperfect systems forward. I actually think the European Union's sustainable and what the Greek people, for example, have gone through, which is just the most incredible devastation of living standards, real decline in incomes uh, and opportunities in Greece, uh, has, has led to the creation of extreme parties, well, not the creation, the amplification of extreme parties, um, but... Uh, it hasn't really yet, I think, uh, fundamentally undermined democracy. We'll see what happens um, in, in, in other countries. I see, though, that, um, you know, I, I, I haven't gone into this in this book, but I'm, I'm now on another, my next book, which is called The Butterfly Defect, uh, Globalization and Systemic Risk, and I see uh, a conversation around privacy and individuality coming out very strongly uh, in the next decade or two. In other words, our desire to cede privacy and to give trusted actors information about ourselves because we believe it will give us a safer future. Now, the big question is who do we trust in that? Who would you give your private information to? Would you give it to the government? Would you give it to some NGO? Who would you give it to and how would they manage that? And that really comes out of my concern on, on um, biopathogens. I want, you know, I want to know who's got a biopathogen, and I think we all want to know, and yet, how are we going to do that? So there are certain things that are developing technologically that are going to lead us to want to have different outcomes and want very strong actors to control things. But I don't believe that... I, I think we're a long way from emergency measures. One of the things that's come out very strongly uh, across the democracies in um, recent decades is the seeming tolerance of democracies for growing inequality. 
Inequality has increased dramatically across all the, most of the democracies, um, and yet, uh, although there are people that sort of see a dystopian outcome and riots on the streets, and you know, actually, uh, these are amongst the most peaceful times that we're in. Uh, and times around 20 years ago uh, were rougher in many places. So I, I don't see that um, yet. Democracy and capitalism, that's a, a very, very big one. Um, you know, under this, this umbrella of capitalism comes a multitude of sins. And, um, of course, you know, from, from one extreme of highly regulated to, to much freer and... Um, I certainly believe that we need much more regulation in a market system. So I believe the debate about whether we have state or market is sort of is the starting point of a conversation which is about the balance, about the forces, about the regulations, about the checks, about who with what authority and the extent to which the market can corrupt the institutions, mainly through lobbying. The power of the coal lobby in the U.S., for example, the power of the financial lobby. And, and as Joe Stiglitz has, um, has outlined in his recent book, The Price of Inequality, this is a vicious circle. Because the more you have a small elite uh, which is able to lobby and buy uh, politicians and uh, pay for their ads and everything else, the more you get into inequality and therefore the more that small elite becomes powerful. So, I mean, this, these, these, this system is inherently unstable and leads to growing inequality. Uh, so I believe that that, I mean, one of the things that dramatically needs to be regulated is, is political lobbying uh, and money buying votes in democracies. Um, the, the question, um, I just want to remind myself, uh, is, oh, yes, the, the power over institutions uh, question. Will, it is true that the G7 basically created the system and dominated it, and that's part of the reason it worked, uh, that they didn't have to listen to 200 countries. Uh, and so how will it work in the future? I think we're going to go through a perfect storm uh, of globalization, which is basically unmanaged, uh, institutions which are basically incapable of managing because of the perfect storm at the balance level of global politics. But when we come out the other side of the... So perfect storm with no captain is the scenario for the next 20, 15 years or so, unless we get our act together and push our governments to do something. Um, the other side of the storm is wonderful calm. I look forward to it. Hopefully I'll be retired then and uh, can feel peaceful. And that's a, that is basically a world governed by a much more equal power balance, where China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, South Africa, Nigeria, and many other countries are the global economy. By 2050, what we now think of as emerging markets will be 80% of global economic activity. 80%. Okay? The balance will have shifted. But on the way, by about 2030, you're going to, already half of global economic activity is in emerging markets. But the politics is lagging 20, 30 years behind this, the institutional politics. As it starts catching up, we'll get much more balanced global institutions. And as the pressures of globalization become more evident, whether it's pandemics or climate change uh, or finance or cyber or any others. Citizens across the world, but not least in these countries, we'll have this massively growing middle class, will demand of their governments, get active, get engaged. 
run these institutions, and then you'll have more balanced institutions. So I think we will head towards global institutions. I don't think they'll look very much like the ones we have now necessarily, which will be much more effective and much more engaged. The only question is how do we get there? <laughs> I've got three more already. I'm going to take the three that I've just signaled, then I'll come to other people. So there's a gentleman who's got the mic, young man with the purple top, and a gentleman in the front row. Yeah, go ahead, please. David Evans, philosopher. We've seen the Japanese response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. They were seriously afraid. And the German government is, is similarly afraid that they've similarly abandoned nuclear power or that they're in process of doing so, like the Japanese. I'd like to connect that, that experience with the British experience of how we reduced road accidents. And we, we did that by extended advertising campaigns over many years. And those advertising campaigns on television and radio and, 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 and cinema, they made people afraid of the consequences of bad driving. That fear is the same fear that the Japanese had and the Germans had. So the point I'm trying to get to is that if we had a, a, a major advertising campaign in favour of reducing global warming and preventing pandemics, that would be a credible alternative to martial law, as, as was suggested earlier on. So I would like to hear what response you have to that, that we need an, a, a major advertising campaign to prevent pandemics and global warming. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, ben Mason, member of the public. You've touched on uh, democracy a few times, and I had a question about democrat um, so mandates and legitimacy. So in, in the current debate, even EU advocates like myself have to concede that there's a democratic deficit at EU level. So if we're creating supranational institutions, do you think that's inherent, a democratic deficit, and that's something that we have to be reconciled with and, and make the case it's a price worth paying? Or do you find that defeatist, and do you think that democracy can catch up? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Misha Gavrilovic. Uh, you've spoken sort of rather theoretically about a number of things. Sovereignty, which I'd like to raise, because the European Union has gone through a process from being a common market to that of the European Community and now the European Union. And the one thing that is clear is that governments now are far less sovereign than they were in the past. It is very easy to blame governments, but how can one blame them when they're not sovereign over many issues that their countries have to deal with? If I go back, since I've lived through this process, people were much happier when there was a common market because in those days we had a Europe, uh, or at least Western Europe, where countries traded but they remained sovereign. They had their own laws and everybody understood each other and they traded. And Europe was popular and international was popular. But as one was taking away sovereignty, one has come to the present situation 
where most Europeans, I would suggest, certainly in this country, don't know who their European representatives are, have no clue about what is happening at Brussels, and are very, very concerned about the fact that Westminster Parliament or parliaments throughout Europe have no more control over very, very important issues. So the issue here is, was sovereignty, in fact, not a good thing? And should we simply not dismiss nations when the nations certainly in Europe exist and at least the common market as we had it did in fact uh, legitimize the nation and it worked much better than it does today? Yeah. Um, yeah, another, another set of uh, challenging questions. Um, I think... Uh, the, the, the point about how governments uh, can change behavior is, is absolutely right, and you gave the example um, on nuclear or road accidents, but one can cite many, many areas uh, of this um, um, that are dramatic. You know, smoking, uh, kills, where uh, seatbelts would come in, uh, understanding of multiple dimensions of our lives, simple things like wash your hands, for example, in public toilets, things like that, which really make a huge difference to our life expectancy uh, and, of course, the burden we place on the National Health Service and, and many other things. Um, so that is important, and I would add another dimension to it, which is research and education is part of that process, investing in solutions. Uh, as part of that and one of the things that, that, that I'm extremely frustrated about in the UK is the very dramatic cut in research expenditure just at a time when the UK needs to become more competitive uh, and grow it's cutting every, all the bases of the seeds of growth it's cutting research, infrastructure spending uh, and health, you know, health spending that, that's basically what determines nation's competitiveness uh, going forward um, so I think that's absolutely vital, and I'd, I'd go one step further. You know, I, I think we need a sort of Manhattan project. In other words, uh, I, mean, I was very taken um, by my visit to the Churchill War Rooms not too far from here. And you get a sense of the mobilization of society around the time of the war, uh, with what, what, what patriotism was about and people being brought behind a common cause. Um, which, which, which people, elderly people like my mother still talk about. This was the best time to be British. This, you know, this is when I felt proudest. We suffered the most, but we understood it. Common, a common narrative, as the politicians now would call it. Um, and um, I, I feel very comfortable with the creation of common narratives around things like climate change, for example, uh, because I think we need them. Uh, but there's total absence and unwillingness uh, to engage in that sort of thing. The, the, the questions on, on the European Union democratic deficit are rather similar, I think, uh, sorts of points were being made about uh, how do you cede sovereignty and yet uh, maintain control on things that matter to you and, what's the de and, and does the democratic deficit matter? I think the... the and, and this is obviously reflected in the fractioning and breaking up of countries as well. You know, Scotland wants to leave the UK is, is another reflection of this, what the Scottish would see as a democratic deficit. Um, and, and, and that's true. I, I believe that um, one should... The, the presumption of governance should be 
the subsidiarity principle. In other words, things should be decided at the lowest possible level for all decisions that matter. Um, And that one really has to think very deeply about what needs to be national and what needs to be regional, let's say EU, and what needs to be global. Uh, The problem when you go down that road is that the debate is in that. And I I talk about this at some length in the book because it's an issue which troubles me greatly. Um, So I want a national police force uh, because actually I don't want... Uh, criminals to be operating in London that might come to Oxford. It's not good enough just having an Oxford police force because no matter how strong it was, it couldn't stop a marauding gang of criminals uh, from London, let's say. I also want a national pandemic management because no matter how strong the Oxford uh, health system is, if there's a pandemic in London, I'll die. Now, what is, it I, what is it that I can give? I mean, so we have the garbage collection, we have the local things, etc. Now, the problem is when you extend that up, the globalization chain, what can the UK control uh, that will determine its future that can't, doesn't also have to be controlled outside the UK? And the whole point about hyper-globalization and connectivity is that there's fewer and fewer things that we can control our destiny on. And that's the problem with globalization. I think it does imply a loss of sovereignty. It does imply that. Because you cannot control the key things that will shape our future at the national level. Now, if you think you can, that's great. Then let's talk about the examples that that you might have. Um, remember also that one has to do this in a sense of reciprocity. There's no point saying, you know, I will determine, UK, what I want to import or export. Uh, I will determine who I want to import or export. I will determine what capital I want. But by the way, I'm going to send it all to you. You know, I want to go to your country. I don't want you to come here. I want you to buy my goods and services, but I don't want to buy yours. I want to... Um, send you my carbon emissions, but I don't want to control mine. Okay? That don't, doesn't work in an ethical world or in a world where they're equal partners or partners that have a voice. Because they'll just say, well, if you don't want um, to take my people, we're not going to send you ours. And we've seen the tit-for-tat with Brazil, which is just about this uh, in recent weeks. And we see it in finance, where countries will not... Uh, not form rules if they can't be reciprocal. So the whole principle of reciprocity and of establishing common rules is very important. And I see this very much like football. Whether you're the top of the first division or the bottom of one of the minor leagues, you play by the same rules. And when the referee puts up, and when you do, you know, the cups that bring these leagues together. It's, there's no question about what rules are we playing by. And whether you man you or Wimbledon FC, you play the same rules. And when the referee shows the red card, whether you're Wayne Rooney or a totally unknown player who's getting £5,000 a year, it's the same thing applies. That's what has to happen. And if that, as soon as that disappears, as soon as the, the rich club has different rules, football's finished. We all know that. 
That doesn't, that's not how global politics works. That's not how, it, it's all about power. And that's why reciprocity is important, and that's why sovereignty is, I believe, a right. I believe it's important. I believe that people feel identity around it and should determine their futures as much as possible. But increasingly, because of hyper-globalization, because everything is integrated, uh, we have less and less ability to make these rules. So then the question becomes, do we shape them somewhere else? So yes, I do believe that we are heading towards societies where we have less local sovereignty. The question is, do we replace it with more global? In other words, by actively participating and helping shape the rules at the global level. It also implies necessarily that there will be things that happen we don't like as a society. Go to your point. A necessary part of us being more connected and more interdependent is that sometimes other people will shape decisions that we don't agree with. Are we going to abide by them or not? And that is the test. And that's when you either get bullying or you get abiding. And I think that's the crucial question. And, and we have to accept, I think, that there will be at times things we don't like. But we do it because we believe that the whole system benefits by playing the same rules. You've obviously never heard of Fergie time here. <laughs> uh, I say as a somewhat jaundiced Aston Villa supporter. Um, I, I think we've probably got time for one last question and answer because we're going to move to a book signing. Uh, your hand went up first, sir, with a... Sorry, well, maybe two then. I saw two hands go up, but you can take two yep. here. A gentleman with a sort of greeny-grey tie, and then, yep, gentleman over there. She's very male tonight. Uh, thank you, Professor Golding. Uh, my name's Simon Bailey. Uh, I'm a uh, consultant from uh, Deloitte's Human Capital Practice. And I think a lot of what we've discussed today, to me, in my head, leads me to think about democracy and about the balance between uh, institutions uh, uh, respecting the will of the electorate but also leading and taking a, a stance on something. And the point you made earlier about your committee uh, that has been set up, I, I wonder whether or not it, it, so much of, of what we've discussed could be solved by simply getting these uh, the, our elected representatives to come out in some unified, coordinated fashion and explain, uh, very simplistic I know, but explain to electorates that these global problems require global collective leadership, which ultimately means, at basic level, trust us. And I just wonder what your, your thoughts are on that kind of simplistic, idealistic uh, idea. Thank you. You've got the last question. Uh, Dave Bickers, I, I wonder what you think successful global governance would look like in terms of an outcome in Syria. Hmm. Um, the, the tough questions keep coming. <laughs> um, I, I, I believe um, that leaders are capable of taking global decisions and being very successful at home. And I had the huge privilege uh, to work with one that, that did just that, Nelson Mandela. He never shied away from taking a call on a global issue, whether some of the toughest issues, be they Palestine and Israel or wherever. He was gone. People went to him as a global problem solver. 
uh, and he had very strong views on global affairs. I don't think for a second it made him a weaker national leader. Now, a lot of people at home might not have cared or even known about what he was engaged in globally or how many times he got on a plane and went to meetings or how many phone calls he, he, he drove. And how he, before anyone went, and I represented him at global negotiations, he'd want to talk to you about it. So he knew, and he could go on TV and defend whatever you were going to say and felt comfortable with it. So it can be done. It's just we don't have many Mandelas around, unfortunately. Um, and um, so, you know, one of the questions is, are the leaders we have successful because they're, they're so parochial? Would it be the same people that would play the global And I think um, people would rise to it. But I just think it's become part of the sort of paranoid uh, Westminster or, uh, you know, White House or whatever talk that you can't talk global issues. You can't rise above it. You can't. Electorates won't allow you to. They, don't want, they only want to hear about, you know, uh, pasties and things like that. Um, that. That you've got to somehow be local and be a bloke um, if you want to get elected. I just think they're underestimating uh, all of us uh, in this. And it's not just because I'm obviously from an elite institution and part of the elite, but it's because... I think people get it. They know that the financial crisis did not start uh, in Canary Wharf or in London. Actually, it's not because of bankers' bonuses. There's something really wrong with the way the system links up. And they'll know when the pandemic hits that it didn't start here. Uh, so, you know, virtually half the UK population was killed a couple of hundred years ago through a rat that came on a ship into Liverpool. And after that, they did things, sort of putting these metal things around the ropes that went up onto ships to stop the rats running up. And things. There's nothing wrong with understanding global connectivity uh, and engaging with it, but not in a defensive, xenophobic way. And, you know, this is where we could get into a whole big debate, and no one's asked a question on it, so I'll escape it today. But read my book on it if you want another piece. On migration. I mean, there are two ways to... To, to respond to the global story. One is to say, yeah, it's all terrible. Um, you know, we, we're great. Uh, we'll survive. Close the, raise the, the walls um, and, um, and we'll be fine. Uh, and the other is to say, actually, if we want to be great, it's because we're global. And I think that's the only way that the UK has a future, uh, by actually embracing it and being a leader uh, in the way it manages these things. Uh, the final question um, on, on Syria. Uh, it's, I have a friend here who, who's, who's worked on a lot of UN peacekeeping things, and I'm going to have a drink with him after him. He can tell me uh, whether I'm wrong on this. But my, my sense is that um, there's, there's a number of dimensions which much more needs to be done on. Uh, the, but the main... Okay, so there's a whole story around refugees and the crisis of refugees and the lack of support that's going to refugees. Uh, clearly, um, there's a big story about the extent to which we're able to create credible alternatives for individuals in terms of the future of the country. But I believe that, um, you know, and, and, and I, I, I don't say this with a strong conviction, but with a weak conviction, that uh, we need to arm uh, the rebels. 
if you want to call them that. In other words, there's an insurrection, uh, and it's going to have a bloody outcome. I, was, I, I spent two weeks in Aleppo uh, 18 months ago, just be, or two years ago, just before the war started, um, and, and went from, I was in Damascus and, and Aleppo. Uh, and something quite extraordinary to me has been how people I met and talked to are now discover are killing each other. And I spoke to my mother about this, who was born in Vienna. Uh, and she said, you know, um, our grandparents were turned in by their neighbors that they'd spent 20 years playing bridge with three times a week. The capacity of people to turn against each other and to fractionalize, divide, and kill their neighbors, uh, to mobilize around imagined communities and ideas uh, is something which is, uh, seems to be below the surface in all of us. And getting to grips with that and developing credible threats that when people do that, the world will not accept it, that you cannot bomb your own people or kill your own people, that that's totally intolerable for civilized countries or for a civilized global community. I think we have to be there. The UN Security Council was created for that purpose, but it's totally... Uh, incapable of acting. So I think, you know, again, it's an error. But you go back to the point that someone else raised, absolutely rightly, here we're back to coalition of the willing. What, so why you accept it in Syria and not in Iraq? And that's, I think, you know, that's my own just personal judgment call. I'm not saying it's theoretically or conceptually uh, the right answer, but that's just my gut response to your, to your question tonight. Thank you, Ian. Um, those of you that want to read further, I strongly recommend Ian's book. It's uh, for sale outside. And the way we're going to do this, just before I move a vote to thanks, is if you would go outside and purchase the book and then bring it back in if you want it to be signed by Ian. Ian will stay here. Um, I'd like to thank you all very much for coming. It's very nice to have a diverse audience here at, at LSE. It will be podcasted, all being well. Ten million people a year download our podcast, so it's a very major program of public events. I'd like to thank the public events staff tonight, of course, for making this uh, event work as well as it always does. But mainly, Ian, thank you very much for coming back to the school and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank yeah. you. Well, thanks for